now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Good afternoon, everybody, one and all, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today, each and every Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. Well, I just wanted to say it's been an interesting week. It's been steady, but hasn't been crazy, and uh, hopefully uh, daylight savings time uh, didn't throw you off too much, but uh, with an extra hour of daylight. Uh, hope you're feeling better. Uh, most people do. That's uh, one of the things that I notice in this profession, that uh, people's moods tend to improve slightly. Uh, and then uh, in October, I typically call that the October slide, when we go back into, you know, turning the clocks back an hour, and that's when people complain about getting up in the dark and coming home from work in the dark. But uh, we'll see how things go. I think Congress has been busy to kind of eliminate this, and so we have just one one time, you know, we don't have to worry about, do we turn the clocks ahead or turn it back? So we'll see where that goes. So... Anyway, uh, so just again, welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity. Each and every week, these broadcasts uh, focus on the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all within the context uh, of our relationships with ourselves and others and God or the divine. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me, or if you want to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. That's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And if uh, any uh, part in the show today, um, maybe the second hour or the second half of the show, I should say, if you'd like to be part of the show, I invite you to call the, the number and uh, put you on live so you can speak with me. That number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And just in case you can't stick around for the whole show today, or maybe you would like to go back and listen to other shows, you can go back into the archives and listen to previous ones. And uh, also these podcasts are available for download on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon Music. And uh, just before we get into the show today, I just want to mention that if you'd like to subscribe to these broadcasts, uh, you may do so by visiting the website and click on the subscription link. Now, uh, it's a little caveat there. You do not need a subscription to listen to these shows, but it is greatly appreciated. So again, just find the link on the website and it will instruct you uh, further. Well, for those who are tuning in for the first time, I just want to say welcome. Thank you for finding this show. And uh, again, like I said, uh, these shows are dedicated to mainly the integration of spirituality and our mental health. I know um, a lot of times, um, 
depending on either who's doing a show or who do you talk to, there might be an emphasis on, well, we need to keep these topics separate. And so let's just talk about spirituality or let's just talk about mental health. But, you know, an interesting dynamic comes up when we begin to integrate these two. We find that they are not exclusive. In fact, uh, they support one another quite nicely. And in fact, it really opens us up uh, to improving our relationships and gaining insights where perhaps we felt stuck or perhaps um, we were just running into a mental block or perhaps uh, any other issue in our lives. So, again, uh, just welcome to the show. And um, I'm sure you've heard me say this before, if you are a continuous listener, thank you. But I just wanted to say that uh, I am just a firm believer that all of us come into the world already equipped and graced with everything that we need in this life in terms of our giftedness and skills and talents and strengths and uh, character traits, etc. Uh, however, you know, as we go along in life and due to some unpleasant experiences, we may tend to hide our giftedness, or we push that those talents way down so that others cannot see it. Perhaps, um, you know, we we felt like we were being exploited, or if we opened up, somebody took advantage of that, and then we just kind of shut down because we don't want to feel that kind of betrayal or that pain ever again. Or perhaps, uh, maybe growing up, we can think back that we were told that we would never amount to anything. Or whatever other voice we heard from adults uh, or friends or whoever telling us that there's really nothing special to us. And that's just not true. Uh, but at any rate, when we uh, do not realize our giftedness, we do not realize that the very best of us and who we are is within, we often go through life functioning from a place of woundedness. Or we fall into um, uh, living out uh, life through the eyes of, of being a victim. And we do that instead of, you know, coming from, you know, or coming into relationships from a place of, of healing and wholeness and embracing our uniqueness. And everybody is certainly unique. So that's what I mean by integrating uh, spirituality with our mental health, to really focus on uh, what we come into the world with. Okay? And in fact, uh, when we think about it, there, there's so much more to us than what we have become so far. And again, this is what reclaiming authenticity is all about. We, we have to find the courage to be able to reclaim that which has always been in us, okay? These things are there from the beginning. These things we came into the world with. And so where are they? What are they? And so forth. Because we are so much more than what perhaps we even realize in this very moment. So when we become aware of our own internal logging, I should say, to be more authentic in relationships and truer to ourselves, uh, this aspect alone will compel us to begin the process of reclaiming who we are, you know, our voice, our uniqueness, our thisness. And in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, Henry Nowen writes that uh, people discover that there is tremendous strength in healthy relationships because there are people who heal each other's wounds 
who forgive each other's offenses, who share their possessions, who foster the spirit of community and celebrate the gifts they have, and live in constant anticipation of the full manifestation of God. And so, just focusing on that uh, first sentence, people discover that there is tremendous strength in healthy relationships. And this is how we heal. Because when we think about it, we receive our deepest wounds in unhealthy relationships. Uh, maybe it was something, you know, uh, a, a psychological wounding or an emotional wounding or a physical wounding or even a spiritual wounding. And um, they resulted from unhealthy relationships. But when we find healthy relationships and as we heal, um, our healing is continuous. It's ongoing. And we find, again, the irony of bringing us back into relationships to heal those, uh, say, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual wounds. So, well, welcome to today's show entitled The Courage of the Buffalo, Weathering the Storms. Well, it's interesting, um, if any of you have been out to the Great Plains, or let's say you even live in the Great Plains area, uh, people and animals often run for cover when a storm is coming up, okay? In fact, one of the characteristics of severe weather in this area is due to, shall we say, a lack of natural obstacles, the mountains, you know, lots of trees and whatnot that would redirect air to flow toward storm systems, but because there's nothing really blocking the wind or the rain or, or the snow and the ice, you know, as a result, explosive thunderstorms, you know, can come up very fast during the warmer months and powerful and bone chilling blizzards during the winter can also occur. Well, I have uh, quite a few uh, Native American friends that live on the Great Plains and the Great Plains areas, and they reminded me of this phenomenon one day when I was visiting with them in South Dakota. And the, interestingly enough, the topic of discussion turned to the courage of the buffalo, a sacred animal of the Lakota Sioux. And uh, we were out running around, and uh, we were just out, you know, doing a little bit of sightseeing. They were showing me all kinds of places and giving me a history and all that, and just really loved it. Just phenomenal. And we came across a buffalo. And uh, we got out and uh, kept our distance, you know, because, hey, <laughs> you know, buffaloes are buffaloes, okay? Uh, very impressive an animal, uh, an animal it is. And so while I was marveling, at the impressive size and strength of this animal, they shared with me um, something that was really profound, and I find it to be true time and time again. You know, they said that the true power of the buffalo doesn't lie in its size or its physical strength or even its swiftness to run across the plain, but rather the true power of the buffalo lies in its courage. Because you see, whereas most animals will literally turn tail and run away from fierce storms, the buffalo instead will put its head down and walk directly into the storm. See, the buffalo doesn't give up. It looks danger right in the eye and walks towards it. And that's an impressive point we can take away from this majestic creature. We can draw all kinds of parallels. So uh, what I would like to share with you now is just ultimately the reason why the buffalo is considered so sacred to the Great Plains Native American Indians. Uh, 
And there is a tale told in the book Black Elk Speaks that communicates how the buffalo came to be. One summer, so long ago that nobody knows how long, the Oseti Shakawan, the seven sacred council fires of the Lakota Oyete, the nation, came together and camped. The sun shone all the time, but there was no game, and the people were starving. Every day, they sent scouts out to look for game, but the scouts found nothing. Well, early one morning, Chief Standing Hollowhorn sent two of his young men to hunt for game. They went on foot because at that time, the Sioux did not yet have horses. They searched everywhere, but they could find nothing. And seeing a high hill, they decided to climb it in order to look over the whole country. And halfway up this hill, they saw something coming toward them from far off, but the figure was floating instead of walking. And from this vision, they knew that the person was wonkin or holy. Well, at first, they could only make out just a small moving speck, and they really had to squint to see that it was a human form. But as it came nearer, they realized that it was a beautiful young woman, more beautiful than any they had ever seen, uh, with two round red dots of face paint on her cheeks. She wore a beautiful white buckskin outfit, tanned until it shone a long way in the sun. It was embroidered with sacred and marvelous designs of porcupine quill in radiant colors no ordinary woman could have made. <clears throat> and this walking stranger was White Buffalo Woman. In her hands, she carried a large bundle and a fan of sage leaves. She wore her blue-black hair loose, except for a strand at the left side, which was tied up with buffalo fur. Her eyes shone dark and sparkling with great power in them. And the two men looked at her open-mouthed. One was overawed, but the other desired her and stretched out his hand to touch her. Uh, this woman was considered very, very sacred and could not be treated with such disrespect. And lightning instantly struck the brash young man and burned him up, so that only a small heap of blackened bones was left. Or, as some might tell this story, that he was suddenly covered by a cloud, and within it he was eaten up by snakes that only left his skeleton, just as a man can be eaten up by lust. Well, to the other scout who had behaved rightly, White Buffalo Woman said, Good things I am bringing, something holy to your nation, a message I carry for your people from the Buffalo Nation. Go back to the camp and tell the people to prepare for my arrival. Tell your chief to put up a medicine lodge with 24 poles. Let it be made holy for my coming. Well, this young hunter returned to the camp. He told the chief and he told the people what this sacred woman had commanded. A chief told the crier and he told the people. And he went out throughout the camp, calling out, 
Someone sacred is coming. A holy woman approaches. Make all things ready for her. So the people put up a big medicine teepee and waited. And after four days, they saw a white buffalo woman approaching, carrying her bundle before her. Her wonderful white buckskin dress shone from afar. The chief, standing hollow-horned, invited her to enter the medicine lodge. She went in and circled the interior sunwise. The chief addressed her respectfully, saying, Sister, we are glad you have come to instruct us. And then she told him what she wanted done. In the center of the teepee, they were to put up a sacred altar, made of red earth, with a buffalo skull and a three-stick rack for a holy thing she was bringing. They did what she directed, and she then traced a design with her finger on the smooth earth of the altar. She showed them all how to do this, and then they circled the lodge again sunwise. Halting before the chief, she now opened the bundle she was carrying. The holy thing contained the chanupa, the sacred pipe, and she held it out to the people and let them look at it. She was gasping, or I should say, she was grasping the stem with her right hand and the bowl with her left, and thus the pipe has been held ever since. Again, the chief spoke, saying, Sister, we are glad. We have had no meat for some time. All we can give you is water. So they dipped some sweet grass into a skin bag of water and gave it to her, and to this day, the people dip sweetgrass or an eagle wing in water and sprinkle it on a person who is to be purified. The white buffalo woman showed the people how to use the pipe. She filled it with red willow bark tobacco. She walked around the lodge four times after the manner of the great sun. This represented the circle without end, the sacred hoop, the road of life. The woman placed a dry buffalo chip on the fire and then lit the pipe with it. This was the fire without end, the flame to be passed on from generation to generation. She told them that the smoke rising from the bowl is Tonkashila's, or God's breath, the living breath of the great grandfather's mystery. The white buffalo woman showed the people the right way to pray the right words, and the right gestures. She taught them how to sing the pipe-filling song and how to lift the pipe up to the sky toward the grandfather and then down toward Grandmother Earth and then to the four directions of the universe. With this holy pipe, she said, you will walk like a living prayer. With your feet resting upon the earth and the pipe stem reaching into the sky, your body forms a living bridge between the sacred beneath and the sacred above. Wakin Tonkin, or God, smiles upon us because now we are as one. Earth, sky, all living things, the two-legged, the four-legged, the winged ones, the trees, the grasses. Together with the people, they are all related, one family. The pipe holds them all together. 
Look at this bowl. Its stone represents the buffalo, but also the flesh and blood of the red person. The buffalo represents the universe and the four directions because he stands on four legs for the four ages of humanity. The buffalo was put in the West by Wonkin Tonkin at the making of the world to hold back the waters. Every year he loses one hair and every one of the four ages he loses a leg. The sacred hoop will end when all the hair and the legs of the great buffalo are gone and the water comes back to the earth. The wooden stem of this chanupa stands for all that grows on the earth. Twelve feathers hanging from where the stem and the backbone joins the bowl, the skull, are from the spotted eagle, the very sacred one who is the great spirit's messenger and the wisest of all who cry out to Tonkashila. Look at the bowl. Engraved in it are seven circles of various sizes. They stand for the seven ceremonies you will practice with this pipe and for the seven sacred campfires of our Lakota nation. The white buffalo woman then spoke to the women, telling them that it was the work of their hands and the fruit of their bodies which kept people alive. You are from the Mother Earth, she's told them. What you are doing is as great as what warriors do. And therefore, the sacred pipe is also something that binds men and women together in a circle of love. It is the one holy object in the making of which both men and women have a hand. The men carve the bowl and make the stem. The women decorate it with bands of colored porcupine quills. When a man takes a wife, they both hold the pipe at the same time, and red cloth is wound around their hands, thus tying them together for life. The white buffalo woman had many things for her Lakota sisters in her sacred womb bag. Corn, wasna, wild turnip. She taught how to make the hearth fire. She filled a, a buffalo paunch with cold water and dropped a red-hot stone in it. And she said, this is the way you shall cook the corn and the meat. The white buffalo woman also talked to the children, because they have an understanding beyond their years. She told them that what their fathers and mothers did was for them, that their parents could remember being little ones, and that they, the children, would grow up to have little ones of their own. And she told the children, you are the coming generation. That's why you are most important and precious. Someday, you too will hold this pipe and smoke it. <clears throat> Someday, you will pray with it. And then she spoke once more to all the people. This pipe is alive. It is a red being showing you are a red life and a red road. And this is the first ceremony for which you will use the pipe. You will use it to walk in Tonkin, the great mystery spirit. The day a human being dies is always a sacred day. The day when the soul is released to the great spirit is another. Four women will become sacred on such a day. They will be the ones to cut the sacred tree for the Sundance. 
She then told the Lakota that they were the purest among the tribes, and for that reason, Tonkashila had bestowed upon them the holy Shanupa. They had been chosen to take care of it for all the Indian people on this turtle continent. She spoke one last time to Standing Hollowhorn, the chief, saying, Remember, this pipe is very sacred. Respect it, and it will take you to the end of the road. The four ages of creation are in me. I am the four ages. I will come to see you in every generation cycle, and I shall come back to you. The sacred woman then took leave of the people, saying, I shall see you again. And the people saw her walking off in the same direction from which she had come, outlined against the red ball of the setting sun. As she went, she stopped and rolled over four times. The first time she rolled over, she turned into a black buffalo. The second time she rolled, she turned into a brown buffalo. The third time she rolled, turned into a red one. And finally, the fourth time she rolled over, she turned into a white female buffalo calf. A white buffalo is the most sacred living thing you could ever encounter. The white buffalo woman disappeared over the horizon. Sometime she might come back. As soon as she had vanished, buffalo in great herds appeared, allowing themselves to be killed so the people might survive. And from that day on, our relations, the buffalo, furnished the people with everything they need. Meat for food, skins for their clothes and teepees, and bones for their many tools. Indeed, the buffalo is an impressive animal, not just in its size, but also for how it stands as a lesson that despite the storms of life, that people will survive because they have everything they need. Well, I would really love to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And I am your host, Dr. James Houck. I'll be back with you in one minute.
right, welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you're listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I just want to share with you a quick word about next week's show entitled, A Line in the Sand, What Divides Our Hearts? Now, in next week's show, I'm going to be talking about boundaries that are drawn on a map and how, according to history, how they, those lines on a map affect us. You know, almost as if all those lines were drawn on our hearts or in our hearts, dividing people based on external appearances of race and color and creed and nationality and religion, etc. And how often do we allow ourselves to be defined by another person's limitations of what they think they see instead of realizing that we are souls, souls that are limitless and vast and eternal? So join me next week right here on bbsradio.com, Station One, or through one of the other podcast formats for A Line in the Sand, What Divides Our Hearts. Well, earlier in the show, I was uh, talking about the courage of the buffalo, actually. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of marveling at its strength and its size. And and when storms come up on the Great Plains, how people and animals often run for cover, and, and rightly so. In fact, um, as I mentioned, that one of the characteristics of severe weather in this area is due to the lack of natural obstacles, like mountains or trees and so forth, that redirect the air to flow towards storm systems so they're not as severe. Okay, and as a result, uh, explosive thunderstorms, you know, just come up on the Great Plains during warmer months, and and then you also have uh, you know very powerful blizzards that uh, uh, you know occur during the winter. And I would happen to be out there during the summer, and no, I was not in the middle of a storm or anything, but um, there was just um, just wonderful, wonderful time that I was having with my uh, Lakota friends. They have taught me uh, so much uh, and just very impressed with their uh, friendships. And um, you know, we talked uh, quite a bit about uh, spirituality and they shared with me quite a bit about their history and some of the pain that the people still feel today as a result of being uh, betrayed. Uh, down through history by governments and and other entities. And so um, we uh, engaged uh, several times in healing ceremonies, as well as um, just talking through some of these issues and where the people still struggle to uh, find healing in their life, find purpose, find direction, find uh, that uh, sense of pride in who they are. Instead of, you know, being made to feel like a second-class citizen or not being understood or ridiculed or shamed. Well, as we were out and about and they were sharing with me um, many, many stories, uh, we happened to come across this buffalo. And uh, just in the middle of nowhere, it was all by its lonesome. And um, we got out and kept a distance from it. Um, Nobody went up and petted it because, after all, it is a buffalo. And so I was just really awestruck by the impressive size and strength of the buffalo. It was just a a massive creature, and I just really admired it. And, um, you know, of course, 
as with any great moment, you know, anything can be turned into a lesson. And so they saw that as an opportunity to share with me that the true power of the buffalo doesn't lie in its size. Uh, it doesn't lie in its physical strength or its swiftness, uh, but rather the true power of the buffalo lies in its courage. And they pointed out that whereas most animals will literally turn tail and run away from fierce storms, the buffalo does not do that. The buffalo walks directly into the storm. In fact, it'll put its head down and just keep moving. It doesn't give up. In other words, it, it looks danger right in the eye and walks toward it. And at that moment when they were sharing, you know, my eye was coming up with all kinds of images and, and connections and drawing parallels of, wow, this is something that we can learn from this beautiful, beautiful creature about the storms that we face in our lives and, and how do we, you know, either turn tail and run or do we have enough courage to put our head down and walk toward the storm? But, have you ever thought, like, what is it about the courage that empowers the buffalo uh, and us to be able to do this? I mean, just some people are just fearless, you know, as we would describe. And, and that's what I would probably categorize as the you know, what characteristic of the buffalo is that they are fearless. They just, you know, it's not that they disregard the danger, but they just like, mm, okay, whatever, I'm going to walk toward it. And uh, the answer is quite simple when you think about it, that uh, for people to be able to have the courage to walk toward a storm, they realize that there is more to life than the storms. You see, the buffalo can walk towards the storm because it knows that storms don't last. Storms are temporary. There's something better on the other side. We too can walk toward the storms in our lives because we know that storms don't last. Storms are temporary. There's something better on the other side. In fact, when we're able to look beyond the storms and, and know that the sun will come out again, the rain will stop, the clouds will part, when we know that the sun's going to come out again, or that even while there is uh, a night that's just filled with our mourning and crying and weeping, there's going to be joy and peace in the morning hours, because then that's when we see the storm for what it is. It's an illusion that wants us to believe that it is the end-all, be-all of our life. And yes, there is danger, you know, the danger is real, yes, the pain can be excruciating at times, but please don't believe the illusion that you are powerless. The buffalo walks towards the storm because it knows that storms don't last. Storms are temporary. Something better is on the other side. And you are not without power. Well, at any rate, when we do not realize our giftedness, as I said at the beginning of the program, and we go through life functioning from a place of woundedness or being a victim or thinking that we always have to go into victimhood, 
instead of a place of healing and wholeness and, and embracing who we are, our uniqueness, um, I think we, we realize that we have more courage than what we think. Just that perhaps we haven't discovered it yet, or perhaps we haven't trusted it yet. Okay. In fact, there's so much more to us, as I said, than what we have become so far. Every storm teaches us something teaches us something about ourselves, teaches something you know, to us about our relationships, and so forth. It teaches something about courage. It teaches something about what does it mean to turn and face the storm in spite of the don't know what this is going to look like afterwards, but we know that the storm is not going to last. And so we can walk to the storm and through the storm, knowing we're going to come out on the other end. And, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, really, as I said, this is what reclaiming authenticity is all about. You know, we, we have the courage to find that courage and to use that courage to reclaim that which has always been in us. And trauma is really not the only thing that has been passed down through the generations, you know, it's one of the things that my uh, Native American Indian friends shared with me. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma within um, Sioux and the Lakota and the Dakota and, and the Cheyenne and, and, and on and on and on. Just a lot of intergenerational trauma, which is characterized as, let's say, the first generation who experiences something so horrific, so painful, that it they've never healed from it. And those characteristics uh, or how they then view life or how they then view themselves has passed down through the generations. And maybe three, four, five generations after that, um, you know, those generations believe that that's all they are. They feel the pain of what the first generation who had something very traumatic happened to them. They feel that, even though they've never gone through something, you know, they never they, they've never had that experience. So trauma is not the only thing that has been passed down through and to these generations, but it's also the very systems that fuel prejudices and feelings of contempt and fear and a distorted view of life that have been galvanized or reinforced that often leaves generations in a voiceless disparity. And yet, a huge part of healing intergenerational trauma and moving people towards a healthy sense of self involves not only understanding these historical distortions, but also grieving that which has been taken from you or taken from them. Uh, for example, you know, I often end up explaining this kind of process in the counseling therapy with clients as something being very similar to the movie The Wizard of Oz. You know, it's something I'm sure we've all seen, you know, year after year comes on. Um, I think it's coming up this spring. But anyway, the storyline involves powerful lessons because most people can typically relate to this movie on some personal level. And perhaps one reason why this movie is such a beloved classic is that there are two stories going on 
at the same time. You know, on one hand, we are taken on a journey with the companions of Dorothy, you know, the scarecrow, the cowardly lion, and the tin man. And they are all in search of something they believe is lacking in themselves. So their adventures take them to see the wizard. The tin man needed a heart. The scarecrow needed a brain. The cowardly lion needed courage. And of course, Dorothy just wanted to go home. Great, great story. Yet on the other hand, this trip, this journey to see the wizard is really about an inward journey that they make in order to discover who they are. And as they set out, their journey is filled with dangerous encounters and harrowing escapes from the Wicked Witch of the West and her creepy little minions. But after the witch is defeated, the you know, as the wizard commanded them, and they bring back the, the witch's broom and all that stuff, and all you know was well, the four companions go back to the wizard to receive their reward. And the wizard then takes them back in time and explains that through their ordeal, they each displayed what they lacked. And then that's where we're reminded of, ah, here's the irony. See, the Tin Man displayed a tremendous heart of devotion and loyalty. The Scarecrow turned out to be the brains of the outfit. The cowardly lion, he, she, you know, he too showed remarkable courage in the face of overwhelming odds. And Dorothy, as we all know, had the ability to go home anytime she wanted. All she needed to do was just click her little heels and say there was no place like home. And it was in that moment she finally realized that there was no other place more magical than her own home surrounded by those who loved her. Well, in this story of The Wizard of Oz, we have a classic example of how often people search for things that they believe they lack, but later come to realize that they had these characteristics and traits and strengths and giftedness all along. Uh, it's interesting in my line of work, that, and yet I, you know, I have yet to meet anyone who begins a journey of self-discovery that sooner or later must work through personal and family traumatic experiences, as well as re-examining the stories that have been handed down to them by those also needing to come to terms with their own trauma. In this sense, family perspectives and interpretations of traumatic events seem to go hand in hand. In fact, sometimes trauma becomes a way in which individuals or families and generations have defined themselves which internally perpetuates the cycle of intergenerational trauma. But again, herein lies the healing. How do we tell those stories? If you're like me, the, you know, growing up, family picnics and gatherings and, you know, any other time, holidays, you know, when the family gets together, you're going to hear some stories. Are they true? Well, it depends on who's telling the story. Okay, but it's interesting that at a very, very young age, we've heard these stories for so long that we could tell those stories. In fact, 
how we tell the story is very important to the people who are listening. It's almost as if we have to include every little detail and every little emotion, even the painful ones. And do we pause at the right place? Do we, you know, allow our voices to, you know, inflect a certain anger or a certain disappointment or rage or sadness at just the right time to be able to tell the story correctly? However, when we find our healing, when we find our voice, when we reclaim our authenticity, we begin to tell our stories differently. This is a phenomena that is just characteristic of how we heal. Yes, we're going to remember the historical aspects of our lives. We'll always have those memories. That's just the way it is. But again, how do we tell those stories? Do we tell those stories from a place of woundedness? Or now, do we tell these stories from a place of wholeness and healed and peace with reflection, with a proper perspective, and so forth? How we tell our stories is just as important as telling the story itself. I uh, came across uh, just one of the great quotes that I had found in my life uh, from Marianne Williamson. Just want to share that with you now because she says this uh, a little bit better than I do right here. Uh, She says that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but rather our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. You know, your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Well, down through the centuries... Uh, Shame and guilt has often been used in society as a means to control people. That is, to shame them into feeling a certain way about themselves and or to make them feel guilty in order to get them to do something. And unfortunately, society has on more than one occasion interchanged these words to convey its disappointment in others. You know, for example, you know, people often hear, you know, shame on you, or you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And immediately, there is a sense that something's wrong. Someone is disappointed. And with shame, people internalize that message to mean, there's something wrong with me. I am flawed in some way. I don't measure up 
to another's expectations of how they see me. Yet on the other hand, guilt is not necessarily a negative feeling. Okay, it does communicate to us that we did something wrong, or perhaps we need to go back and fix the error or ask for forgiveness, you know, etc. But in this context, guilt also has the potential to be healing and life-giving in relationships. And yet, on the other side of that, guilt can also be manipulated by some uh, coerce others to do what they want them to do. I mean, you might hear certain phrases like, well, after all I've done for you, or even so-and-so thinks this about you, so it must be right. And yet, shame and guilt, as well as, let's say, stereotypes, prejudices, sexism, classism, racism, etc., can find no place in the language of the soul. Because once we've become firmly rooted in our soul consciousness, manipulation in the form of shame and guilt no longer affects us. Therefore, in this one example, the more we see ourselves and others as souls, the more we are able to transform and transcend beliefs that no longer serve us. And when this awareness occurs, not only do our relationships take on a healthier tone that that transcend time and space, but also we understand the futility of waiting for, let's say, systems to change. We are all beautiful souls made in the image of God, full of inherent value, dignity, and worth. And yet we may struggle to accept this truth because our attention is often diverted to focus solely on outward appearances and behaviors. In other words, we all live with some degree of ignorance of our soul consciousness. We may get glimpses of it, but we never attain the full extent because the physical, emotional, and or psychological issues that cloud our vision of who we truly are. You know, yes, it's true. Diseases and illnesses do afflict us in the body. We do feel physical and emotional pain. And we might believe that we can't take any more because it's going to break us in two. And at times our lungs may struggle to take a breath or hunger or diseases causes our stomach and intestines and bones and muscles and blood to scream in agony. And these experiences just might make us question whether or not we are the soul whom God has created. However, this illusion lies not in the suffering and pain and agony we experience, but rather it's our perception that there is nothing more to us than an emotional, intellectual, and physical body. Yeah, indeed, physical and emotional pain and suffering can temporarily drown out the cry of our soul, but our soul is never silent. In fact, the, the truth is that our greatest strength of who we are as souls lies in our ability to be able to transform and transcend the physical, emotional, psychological limitations. For as much as history has shown us the horrific crimes that humanity has done to itself, there's just as many stories of humanity rising above such tragedies to heal and to reclaim their soul. There's a long road of suffering ahead of you, writes Elie Wiesel. But don't lose courage. You've already escaped the gravest danger, selection. 
So now muster your strength and don't lose heart. We shall see the day of liberation. Have faith in life. Above all else, have faith. Drive out despair, and you will keep death away from yourselves. Hell is not for eternity. And now, a prayer, or rather, a piece of advice. Let there be camaraderie among you. We are all brothers and sisters, and we are all suffering the same fate. The same smoke floats over all of our heads, but help one another. It's the only way to survive. Well, in addition this week to not only turning the clocks ahead and not only St. Patrick's Day, uh, but today officially marks the celebration of Holy, or Holly, H-O-L-I. And uh, this is typically of the, the Hindu people living throughout the world, and especially in India. And um, this is something I'm sure you've seen it. it it's, a, it's a celebration with so much color. Uh, and Holi is a Hindu festival and it's widely popular all over India and in Indian communities around the world. And it's known as the Festival of Color and celebrated actually for two days uh, which which begins today. And uh, it's a festival based on Hindu mythology. And for centuries, the religious holiday has been an important part of the Indian culture and recounting the story of Vishnu and his triumph over an evil king. And each of the colors, as it is thrown on, you know, people, and they're they're covered with just, you know, lots of colors. Um, you know, the colors all carry a specific meaning. For example, uh, if you're splashed with red, shall we say, uh, and it's like a red powder. Okay, it's not red liquid, but a red powder. Uh, red is the ultimate color of love, passion, and fertility. Or let's say you're splashed with blue powder. The, the blue is the color of Krishna's face and also the sky and the oceans. Yellow symbolizes the color of knowledge and learning, symbolizing happiness, meditation, and peace. If you are splashed with green, that's the color of nature. It symbolizes the start of spring and new beginnings. If you are splashed with the color pink, that is the color of caring and compassion. And finally, if you are splashed with the color purple, this may mean that it symbolizes magic and mystery. So, all in all, holly symbolizes the celebration of the spring. It celebrates friendship, family, and the victory of good over evil. You know, communities gather in the streets to throw these bright colored powder and splash each other with colored water. And uh, like I said, these colors carry their own specific meaning. And families also gather to share in this tradition by decorating their homes and sharing food and indulging in sweets. And, um, you know, certainly it marks the beginning of spring. So if you are celebrating Holly for the next day or two, um, keep in mind that you just might come out looking like a rainbow, but that's okay. You don't need to be splashed with colors to be reminded that the joy and bliss of the rainbow is inside of you, and you are empowered to face every storm. 
I'm Dr. James Hauk, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you back here, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Time, uh, next Friday, when I will be sharing uh, another hour with you. And until then, uh, do take care, be safe, and may God hold us in the palm of God's hands. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.